AFIO Now is presented by Northwest Financial Advisors, where our world revolves around you. Hello, everyone. Welcome to AFIO Now. We are a program of recorded interviews with former senior U.S. intelligence officers and those who write about them. Today, I have a very interesting guest and a fascinating topic. Todd Bennett is an associate professor of history at East Carolina University, a historian of U.S. intelligence and um, national security policy. As a historian at the State Department, he edited the well-known series, The Foreign Relations of the United States. Todd, welcome to AFIO Now. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Appreciate the opportunity. Todd, you have a brand new book out in November uh, about a very interesting topic. It is uh, neither confirmed nor deny how the Glomar mission uh, shielded the CIA from transparency. Before we jump into the book, please tell our audience just a little bit about how you did your research and whether you ran into any difficulties or not. Yeah, uh, that's a great question. I think to take the second part of the question first of the difficulties, uh, the Glomar operation, as many of your members will know, was a highly classified operation at the time and was one that uh, remained classified, um, at least an official secret, for it was kind of an open secret for decades after. So the the cover, long story short, I'm sure we'll get into this, but the 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 cover was blown on this operation back in 1975, but nevertheless, the operation remained officially secret for years, which meant that there really wasn't a lot written about it um, for because historians need to work, need primary sources with, with which to work. So there was a long period where nothing was really written until around uh, 2010 or so when the agency released some official histories of the operation. Um, uh, David Sharp, who was an engineer uh, who participated in the project, uh, published a memoir that was cleared by the uh, agency's pre-publication review board. And those were some critical sources uh, that enabled really this story to be told. And then um, to kind of go back to my personal biography, as you say, in a former life, I was a historian at the U.S. Department of State editing the Foreign Relations of the United States series. And as part of that process, um, had access to agency documents um, in the agency's archive in their classified stage and that documented the uh, Hughes-Glomar Explorer project and was able to uh, select some of those documents for uh, potential publication in the Foreign Relations series. That volume, that compilation, entered uh, declassification in 2007. Um, took many years for that process to play out, but that volume was published in 2014 with those declassified documents uh, included. And to my surprise, honestly, given how highly uh, classified the Glomar mission was, those documents were um, lightly redacted. And so at that point, I realized, oh, well, a book is possible here. And so this is a long-winded answer to your question. Um, to the, the key source, in addition to David Sharp's book, and I'll just say at this point, I'm not an engineer. Uh, I'm a historian. And Dave Sharp has written the best. It will remain the final word on the engineering aspects of this operation. My work is more of a political and decision-making uh, book, uh, given that I'm a foreign policy historian. Um, but that first volume was really key because that that's that volume includes some documentation uh, that's available nowhere else. 
um, including some that still resides in the CIA archives. And then I paired that with interviews with uh, participants in the operation, and that was really key. Uh, some, of, some of them may be AFIO members, I don't know. Uh, but that I was really privileged to have that opportunity because they uh, shared a lot of their time with me and gave me a perspective that I simply uh, would not have had otherwise. David, please tell our audience what the Glomar Explorer was and why was it involved in a highly classified um, CIA intelligence operation? Yeah, happy to do so. This is some of your members may may well remember it and others may not, but the Glomar Explorer was a ship, a very large ship. It was over 600 feet long and over 100 feet wide, uh, too wide to pass through the Panama Canal, it turned out, which is kind of part of the story. But ostensibly, as part of a cover story, it was a deep ocean mining ship owned, again, uh, under the cover story by Howard Hughes, uh, who was a famously uh, rich and famously uh, reclusive person. And that was the cover story. But in 1975, as I mentioned, um, it was revealed through an unauthorized disclosure in the press that that was a fiction, that in fact the ship, this mystery ship, which had attracted a lot of attention because of its size, its unusual uh, design, was actually a a spy ship owned by the U.S. government, whose real purpose was to attempt to recover a Soviet submarine that had sunk in the Pacific Ocean back in 1968. Fascinating details. For some of our younger members, tell them just a little bit more about Howard Hughes, and did he become directly involved in the operation? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. Howard Hughes, someone who's um, maybe faded from memory in some respects, who was Howard Hughes? That's a good question. Hughes was famously rich uh, at the time, arguably some reputed to be among the richest people in the world. His wealth was estimated at $2 billion at the time, and we're talking approximately 1970 now. But Hughes, in his young life, had inherited his father's fortune. That was the basis of his fortune. Uh, the, his business was centered around uh, Hughes Tool Company, which was a drill bit firm based in Houston, Texas. And after his father passed, uh, Howard Hughes inherited that wealth and then decamped Houston to become uh, a Hollywood movie mogul, a record-setting aviator, and this may be what some of the younger AFIO members may know him as, and as a celebrated playboy as well. But that was really in a younger, an earlier phase in his life. Uh, by the mid-1950s, he dropped out of public view. The last known photograph of Hughes dates from uh, approximately 1956. And that's because he probably suffered from some kind of undiagnosed mental condition. Armchair psychologists have speculated this may have been a severe obsessive compulsive disorder, uh, but dropped out of sight and was not seen publicly for the rest of his life. And when we see him here as part of the Glomar story, we find him in 1970 secluded atop in the penthouse suite of a casino and hotel in Las Vegas, a desert inn. Uh, where his condition is open to speculation, his, both his physical and mental state. But that's a long-winded way of saying who was Howard Hughes. He was a famously rich and famously recl reclusive person, arguably the most famous recluse in the world. Yeah, but obviously in no way involved in the operation itself. Well, that's that's. Thank you for reminding me that that part of the question. It depends. This is this became an issue of of uh, debate. How much did Hughes know about the operation? 
And I'll just give a quick response to that because he was uh, secluded. This meant that he ran his business empire in a very specific way. His closest associates did not have face-to-face contact with him and had not had face-to-face contact with him since the 1950s. Instead, they transacted business um, via telephone and through written memo, memo. So we do know that when the CIA was interested in approaching Hughes to serve as the front man for this operation, it became a problem because they only had one contact with the Hughes company, and they didn't trust that contact any longer uh, for reasons we can get into, if you like. And so they had to find somebody else, and that was a Houston-based executive uh, who did uh, write a memo to addressed to Hughes seeking approval to essentially put his name on the Glomar Explorer, this ship that I mentioned. We don't know if Hughes approved. We don't have any evidence of that. But his executives, including the person who gave him this note, insist that despite there were um, questions about his mental competence at this stage, that even at this late stage in Hughes's career, that his top executives, if they are be, to be believed, um, never took any action, major action, without his prior approval. Todd, what was the significance of the Soviet K-129 submarine that uh, generated this very elaborate and costly operation? Yeah, so the uh, Soviet sub sank in March of 1968. Its importance was not so much the sub itself. If you recovered the hull of the sub, it might tell you some things about the the status of uh, Soviet submarine design. But naval and U.S. naval intelligence felt like they had a pretty good hold on that, generally speaking. The real value, and it was significant, uh, was the contents of the submarine, primarily. And I should mention at this stage that um, it was important that the submarine was discovered, not just discovered by the U.S., its location, but its condition. That according to underwater surveillance, that it was discovered to be in a recoverable state. That is, it had suffered significant damage, but it was still in pretty good condition and could be recovered, including a portion of the sub that was believed to have at least one uh, submarine-launched nuclear, uh, excuse me, missile system, and, and also the warhead that went along with that. And critically, it was that the sale of the sub, which again was recoverable, the, the CIA felt, the sale of the sub, the brains of the sub was intact, and that to include a, a working uh, cryptographic machine, a code machine, and materials explaining how that system worked. And so far as we know, U.S. intelligence had never before recovered a Soviet code code machine. And it was believed that if that machine and associated materials could be recovered, uh, that you could essentially perhaps begin to read the Soviet Navy's mail. And that would be a significant a significant uh, intelligence coup. And so long story short, the sub was thought to contain unique intelligence, right? Uh, to have unique intelligence value, that it contained information on important subjects, essentially the military capabilities of the Soviet Union, which at this time there was no more important topic, and that it was from a uniquely a valuable source on information available nowhere else. So for those of us who have seen some pictures of the Glomar Explorer, a, a large section of the bottom hull opened, and there is this enormous grappling hook 
that could go down to the floor of the ocean and attempt to seize a significant portion of the submarine. How did the operation go? Yeah, it's an amazing story. If it just in, from an engineering aspect alone, and I, as I say, David Sharp tells that story and tells it well in his book, uh, just to design this enormous surface ship with what was the equivalent of a giant claw, of course, Officials didn't call it that. They called it a capture vehicle, engineers did. But you're right, the equivalent of a giant claw that could descend. And it's important to note the submarine was located more than three miles down, in excess of 16,500 feet. And was the target object was estimated to weigh around 4 million pounds. Uh, so being able to uh, send out a design and uh, build and send a ship to operate in the middle of the open ocean to maintain the stability needed to send a hook three miles down and position itself precisely over the target object is a remarkable accomplishment in itself. This was something that had never been before achieved, done, much less achieved in world history. So that's significant. But to cut to the chase, the, it took years to design that hardware. But by 1974, the Hughes Glomar Explorer set sail from California and did manage to position itself right over the target object, grasped, there were some issues at the bottom, but managed to grasp the sub and to begin to raise the sub. Now, as that happened, a Soviet ships appeared on the scene. Attracted by the fact, um, there's some question about that. The last word on the Soviet response is has not yet been written because we don't have access to those intelligence archives uh, yet, and may never have. I don't, not in my lifetime, probably. Um, but Soviet ships appeared on the scene and began to circle the Glomar Explorer, causing a great deal of concern among on board as to what they knew and if they knew anything and what they intended to do. But as those Soviet ships circled, sometimes one with a helicopter that also circled overhead to observe the explorer's actions, uh, the, the, the hook, the claw, began to raise the submarine and got about halfway up, uh, only for the crew aboard the explorer to feel a shudder aboard the ship. And they knew something had happened. They didn't know exactly what. It took a few minutes to figure it out. But it turned out that part of the submarine had broken off and fallen back to the seabed. So at that point, the crew begins to haul up what they can of the sub and to find out what they have managed to haul up. What do we know about the significance of the intelligence that they were able to recover? And do we know anything about the uh, intelligence that they failed to recover? Yeah, that's a super question. And at this point, I'll say that I've been researching uh, this project for years, uh, since at least 2007, so off and on. I found out a lot of information, but some information still remains classified. So there are some mysteries that remain unsolved, and exactly what the intelligence gain is, is precisely one of those issues. We really don't know exactly what the gain was, but we do know what was not recovered. And we know that, or at least we have a pretty good idea, uh, because there was a, an addition of William Colby, the former DCI. His, uh, an addition of his memoirs were pu published in the late 1970s that specified what, the, uh, what happened. And according to Colby's memoirs, the most valuable portion of the submarine uh, containing that uh, submarine launch ballistic missile system, the warhead, and then also critically the, the cryptographic gear 
that that portion of the submarine was what had broken away from the claw and fallen back to the uh, seabed. Todd, what happened to the Glomar Explorer? And are there any lessons learned for the CIA on conducting this kind of an operation in the future? Yeah, and that's so the 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 Glomar Explorer was a was way ahead of its time. And the hope was when it was constructed that it would have uh, future perhaps clandestine uses in, in future projects. But it really didn't, in part because its cover had blown. And so wherever it went for the rest of its lifespan, it attracted attention. And so it became even uh, more difficult for that platform to operate in, in, a, in a clandestine way. And so it had a variety of uses. Um, it was uh, used by private research groups, eventually leased out to private firms for oil exploration and as far as we know, those did not have a clandestine purpose. But eventually, uh, the Glomar Explorer was scrapped. It was mothballed and then later scrapped. And so didn't really realize that again. But I think the, the more important question are the big takeaways here. And for me, the big, the big takeaway, there's more than one. But I think the big takeaway is, and this is what I explore in the book, has to do with transparency and national security secrecy. As I mentioned, the mission, its cover was blown in the mid-1970s, 1975 to be exact. And that was in the middle, if you know your history, and I know you do, uh, was in this, in this period where the, the CIA's time of troubles, um, where there were a number of disclosures that occurred having to do with domestic spying plots, uh, foreign assassination plots, and so on and so forth. And the Glomar Explorer release was just one of, of these items, which really increased attention on the agency, both in the press and in Congress, and led to calls for increased oversight and certainly a great deal of public scandal. And so this was one example that the Glomar episode, one example that folks pointed to to show that there was too much transparency as the kind of move towards openness and open government accelerated, not just the passage of the Freedom of Information Act, for example, but the strengthening of that act in 1974 by Congress. And there was a sense that the agency was operating in a fishbowl and that that was harmful, many, many believed. And so the takeaway from this was really twofold, I think. One was... Amidst this call, some called for the dissolution of the CIA, and this was, I don't think there's any question about it, the most, the severest existential crisis in the agency's history, um, the U.S. intelligence community's history, to that point in time. And so the lessons learned were, I think, really twofold. One, to be less secretive, to go on the offensive in a public relations sense and to tell your intelligence story. Um, and that's exemplified by the foundation of the AFIO in 1975 um, and David Atlee's Phillips attempt to go on the offensive. And he advised Colby to do the same in regard to the Glomar Explorer. Be public. Be as public as you possibly can without spilling uh, necessary secrets. Tell the agency side of the story. What's the purpose of this episode? Why did you do it? What positive was to come from it? How did it serve the public interest? And the other thing was to adapt in a way of keeping secrets that had to keep necessary legitimate secrets in an age 
that demanded greater transparency. And long story short, I think that's where uh, many of your uh, many of your members will know Glomar, the word Glomar, in two ways, perhaps, as the name of a, of a former clandestine intelligence gathering operation, and that's true, but also by the Glomar response, which is, in my mind, the most durable legacy of the Glomar mission. In, uh, in 1975, in response to requests for information about the Glomar mission filed through the Freedom of Information Act, newly strengthened by Congress in 1974, the director of the cover staff for the Glomar Project, who was also a lawyer by training, and at that point, 1975, served in the agency's um, office of the counselor, uh, was charged with coming up a response to this, to this request for information filed under FOIA. And he came up with the rather brilliant legalese. The response was, we can neither, defer, uh, neither confirm nor deny the existence of the information you request, yada, yada, yada. And regardless of one's opinion on that, that's a rather brilliant piece of legalese because it really takes away the basis of an appeal for a FOIA requester. And this is very frustrating, if I'm being honest, to researchers like myself and watchdogs and journalists. As some, speaking as someone who's been glomarred in the past, it's become a verb. <laughs> but from the agency, agency's perspective, the glomar response has proven to be, and one can document that, one can quantify it, the number of GLOMAR responses that are issued each year to uh, protect the release of thousands of documents. But it's been a very effective response in terms of protecting secure, national security secrets. Well, very well said, great history, and appreciate you telling how AFIO got founded. I'd like to um, switch gears on you just a little bit. You are, of course, a professor at East Carolina University, and you have your own students. For those who are interested in pursuing a career in intelligence, what advice do you give them? Yeah, I haven't had that question yet specifically, but I have had questions about career advice generally. And now I'm a little biased speaking as a former uh, federal historian uh, who maintains good contacts among his peers. But, you know, I think that there's a tendency for students, graduate students, and I'm, that's, I'm thinking pr primarily of graduate students here, but undergraduates too. But there's a tendency for students to be taught, trained to go into the academy, right, and to seek careers as professors, as uh, in institutions of higher learning across the country. And that's great. That's a noble endeavor. And we need more good thinkers in this world. But academics is an extremely competitive uh, environment, like a lot of occupations out there. And so when asked that a similar type of question, I do try to tell students about the opportunities out there in federal service, uh, whether that be as a historian in the federal government or in intelligence agencies. And I think many students are certainly equipped to be uh, analysts, and certainly analysis is uh, something that's often an overlooked feature of the intelligence community. Once again, well said. Well, the book is Neither Confirm Nor Deny, How the Glomar Mission Shielded the CIA from Transparency. I want to thank Todd Bennett for a very interesting and informative session. Well, thank you for the opportunity. I've really enjoyed our chat. 